at that point, they know. <laughs> There's no way. <laughs> well, happy Father's Day. And uh, the thing that we talked about last, uh, on Mother's Day, is that um, sometimes these days are, are heavy um, for a lot of us. We, we may have recently lost um, a dad or, or someone who's close to us um, that, in that role. Uh, some of us, uh, as dads, we look back with a lot of regret from our own mistakes or shortcomings or missed opportunities. Um, and so it's, it's a mixed blessing. It really is. It's a mixed day. But the, what we really want to focus on here is this, is that regardless of whether or not you're a dad or not, um, every single person in this room, God used uh, some, some man to, to be a part of the process bringing you into this world. And we could, we could honor that. We could thank God for that. But on top of that, no matter if you had an amazing dad, a okay dad, or a really bad dad, everyone in this room, part of the reason you're in this room is because God not only used a biological dad in your world to bring you to this place, he also used a spiritual dad or spiritual dads. Like I had a great dad. My dad made lots of great moves and he made lots of mistakes. But, he, but I, 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 I'm indebted to my dad. I'm so grateful for my dad. But he's not the only father in my life. I mean, there were so many other spiritual dads, single dudes, divorced dudes, guys with their own families. They poured into me as a kid and as a junior higher and a high schooler that made me who I am today. And so on a day like today, even if you don't have any examples to look to, that are like, oh, man, I kind of feel like there's nothing I'm really celebrating today. You, you actually do. Because part of the reason you're in this room is because God used someone in, this, in the capacity and the role of a spiritual dad that we can, we can honor as well. True? True. All right. Well, we're in a series, um, and uh, this series we've been going through is through the book of Hebrews. If you've got your Bibles, um, go ahead and open them to Hebrews chapter 3, um, and we're going to be picking up where we left off. If you're just joining us, though, the author of Hebrews is, he's talking, we don't know who the author of Hebrews is, but he's talking to a, a church probably over in Rome made up of people who were Jewish believers. They, they loved God. They served God. And all of a sudden, they hear about Jesus, and they recognize that he's the Messiah that was prophesied all the way through the Old Testament. So they want to put their trust in him. And they do. But at the same token, it is such a gear shift from what they were used to growing up and the whole sacrificial system of what they experienced growing up to what they're experiencing now in Jesus. Like before, we're making sacrifices to God, and now he's the sacrifice to God. You know, before, we, we brought something to a high priest. Now he's the high priest. And so it was, a, it was a massive, massive paradigm shift for them. It was, and it was really tough to handle to the point that we get the tone in the author of Hebrews' voice that he's, he's noticing that this church in Rome is starting to drift. Like, you know what? Again, we, we're, we're all, of, we, not that we don't believe in Jesus. We believe in Jesus. It's, it's just that, What we used to know was so much easier to understand. I mean, it had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of history. Like, there's part of me that feels almost like I'm turning my back on my parents and my grandparents by going with Jesus. And I'm not saying that I don't believe in him. I'm just like, maybe we can just like downplay his importance a little bit. And the author of Hebrews, the whole book of Hebrews is like, no, Jesus is greater than all that. In fact, you know, in, in Hebraic thought, angels played a prominent role. And the author of Hebrews starts out, as you heard Pastor Brent preach on, that he's greater than angels, that Jesus is greater than even the superhero of the Jewish faith, Moses. That, that, he, that, that as a great a leader as he was, even though he was part, he was the man that God used to liberate the, the Hebrew slaves out of Egypt. He was the man that God used to bring bring the law down from Mount Sinai to the people, he was still just a man, and Jesus is greater than him. And so when we get into chapter 3, we're coming up on a place where we've just finished talking about Moses, 
And how great Moses was is faithful in God's house, but how Jesus is faithful over God's house. He's greater than Moses. And then <laughs> the author of Hebrews kind of turns the knife a little bit. Because what he does here is he's like, well, remember, I mean, Moses was great and stuff, but do you remember what Moses couldn't accomplish? Remember what Moses never really pulled off? Remember the whole hope was to get into the promised land, this land of rest? That didn't happen, not through Moses. I mean, it happened through the next generation, but, but that generation, they, they died in the wilderness because they didn't have the faith to trust God to go into the promised land. That's where we pick up on chapter 3, verse 7. So if you could stand, we're going to go ahead and read God's word. And, and the author of Hebrews, some, some have even called him, even though we don't know who the guy is, they, they call him the preacher. The way that he handles this, it's almost like a, this crazy long sermon, um, which is nothing like we would understand in our church. But it's crazy long, and it gets to this part where he's actually quoting uh, Psalm 95. So he starts off this section quoting the psalmist about that event in Israel's past. And this is what it says. So as the Holy Spirit says, verse 7, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested and tried me. Though for 40 years they, they saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. I said their hearts will, are, always going to going, are always going astray. And they have not known my way. So I declared, verse 11, an oath in my anger. They shall never enter my rest. And so then he, he bounces out of Psalm 95 and he starts to unpack what that means. Starting in verse 12. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful and unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the end. Just as it's been said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. You're going to hear that phrase over and over. He keeps bouncing back to what the psalmist says. Verse 16. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, still on the table, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it, for we also have had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God said, so I declare an oath in my anger that they shall never enter my rest. And yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in the words, on the seventh day God rested from all his works. And again, in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who are formerly, formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again, God again set a certain day, calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David. As in the passage already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would have spoken, God would not have spoken later about another day. There, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. 
Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even in dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything, everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. And so we get the fact, beginning in this book, written to a Jewish audience, the fact that, yeah, Jesus is God. And he's not only God, he's he's greater than all these other people that we put on a pedestal. Angels, Moses. And now in this passage, he's saying, well, Jesus is also greater than rest. Less. Ness. Jesus is greater than restlessness, that there's a rest that God wants for us that we are like missing out on. And, and as Christians, even today, even in the first century, and I would say even 2019, we are missing out on this. But we have to understand what he means when he's describing rest. See, like, because when you think of rest, what do you think of? Sleep. Not yet. Okay. Rest, sleep, vacation. And if you go to the dictionary, that's the first definition. Taking a break from work. It's like it's something that, okay, I've been, I've been working hard. I've been, I'm, I'm, I'm just, life is going too fast. I'm, if you're a parent and you've got kids and different things, I'm, I'm, I'm like a, a taxi. And I'm just dropping people off and picking people up. I don't even know who I am anymore. I need a rest. I need a break. I need to stop. If you've been working hard at your job, you're just like, oh man, I just can't wait for my vacation. Or, or maybe you're like looking forward to retirement. Finally, you can rest. And if you're a student, you're like, you can't wait. And all of a sudden, May like buckles down. And, and let's just say that this was a year with not a crazy amount of snow days. And you get done. And finally, you've got summer vacation in which you can finally rest. That's not what the author of Hebrews is describing specifically in this passage. He's actually describing this. It's a rest that means this. It's like what the ancient Hebrews missed out on by not entering the land of promise with Moses. I mean, that wasn't a place where they were going to stop working, but it was this, this quality of life. It was like this, this reality where in this stretch of real estate, they'd have a relationship where God's their leader. You know, they don't need a president. They've got God as their leader and God as their provider. And, and the relationship with God and the relationship with others is taken care of. They can actually rest in the peace of the quality of that relationship. He also describes rest in a couple of different ways as well. It's what God did at the end of his first creative work in the universe. So there's day, God works one, two, three, four, five, six days in creation. And on the seventh day, he what? Rests. And interestingly enough, there's never an end to that day. Every other day in creation, it talks about being end of the day. God finished this particular chapter of creation, this particular chapter of creation. And then all of a sudden you get into, into day seven. And it's almost like, and then God rests. And that day continues on. So I'm almost like there's this, this quality of life, this Sabbath this, this shalom, this peace with God and, and others in creation that God like opened as an opportunity for us to continue experiencing where it doesn't end until sin. And then all of a sudden that got, gets complicated. But it's what God did at the end of his first creation, creative work of the, in the universe. But it's also a future reality of entering into an eternal rest, an, an eternal, not again, not an eternal sleep, not an eternal like I'm not doing anything, but an eternal like quality of experience and, and existence that only comes when, when we as God's creation, as his create, each one of us are his creatures, have are living in line and in tune with what God has accomplished. Rest means something qualitative to the author of Hebrews. It's so much more than sleep. It's so much more than just stopping working out. It's like, it's like, so good. And the, and the Hebrew church, 
they've got this blockade. And the reason that the author of Hebrews is writing the way that he's writing is because they're in danger. They're actually in danger of repeating history by failing to enter into the quality of life God promises. He's saying this, okay, your ancient ancestors missed out on rest because they had disbelief. Because they trusted their gut more than they trusted God. Because they trusted their own passions, their own memories, their own, more than they trusted God's leadership. And because of that, God said, you are not going to enter into the land of promise. You're not going to enter into this rest. You're going to ricochet and ping pong around the wilderness until you're dead. And a lot of Christians, that's a good picture of their life. It's like, no, I, tr- I trust God. I mean, he's liberated me. He's saved me. And we get to a place where all of a sudden it's like this weird... I don't know. It's like when we were first a Christian, it was like, man, it was so passionate. I was like, I was, there was something about that, that that challenged me and charged my life. And I wanted to tell people about it. I, wanted to get, I actually wanted to get into the Bible. I didn't even understand what I was reading half the time. But there was this desire to get into it. Then all of a sudden, life just started to happen. I started to flatline. And the author of Hebrews is describing that as this. It's hard-heartedness to God. It's not a, it's not a one-day decision. It's not like this one single all of a sudden I was cool with God now I'm like distant it's this slow entropy this progression this de-evolution in our heart and our soul between us and God where bit by bit we just take one more step each day a little bit colder to God a little bit more distant and a little bit more trustworthy of our own impulses and inclinations and the author of Hebrews is describing something that we struggle with today because you could know all about God's love And you can still be restless without rest. You could still feel like in your heart there's no peace and you feel chaos. Like you believe in God. You believe in Jesus. You you remember when you prayed. But honestly, you may have prayed a prayer for salvation and still be restless. You might be the Christian that actually has got most of your life together and other other people think you've got it all together and still be restless. And the cool thing about this passage is that it gives us the remedy for restlessness. We actually have the remedy for this embedded in this passage. And it comes from that that verse that we we read through that whole passage. But chapter 4 verse 11 says this. Let us therefore make what? Every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. That, That word right there, every effort, is the Greek word spudazo. Everyone say spudazo. Okay, if you're pregnant and you're looking for a good name for the kid, spudazo, and it means do your best. So like your kid, like, hey, spudazo, do your best. Okay, dad. And it, you know, that's, yeah. So spudazo means do, it's, it's, it means make every effort, but it also, it also means do your best. Now, it's weird because if we subbed that into that verse, it almost feels like it's softening. Let us therefore do our best to enter that rest. So that, oh, now it's sounding like Dr. Seuss. Do, do your best to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. Like if someone tells you, hey, just do your best. It almost sounds like, I don't really think you can do this. But try. Right? Like when my dad, my, my dad would tell me, son, we don't have the money to send you to college. So you've got to get the grades up. All I'm asking you to do is to do your best. And I'm like, sweet, I've done that before. And, and my dad's, and so then the report card would come through and my dad would look at it and he was like, son. And I said, dad, you just, dad, and tears are coming. Dad, you just said to do your best. And, I, and he said, that's right, son, I did. But this is not your best. 
Now that, that's the kind of the context. Do your best. And what doing your best means is make every effort. Do your best. Do your best in this situation. And so if we wanted to encapsulate kind of what this whole passage is, is talking about with regard to entering into the, the quality of life and the rest that we have in God, it's this choice. And, and, and the, the admonition from the author of Hebrews is to do your best. And so we're just going to put it this way. Do your best to rest. This almost sounds like a Dave Jankowski central truth, but it's not. And you know it's not because it would sound better if he did it. His would be like, do your best to enter God's rest. And we, we would all have it memorized, but it's not. It's Errol McFadden, so it's not as good on that. But it's do your best to rest. That is what this is. He's talking through the reality of the fact that God has called us to make a daily choice. And the daily choice is not to be complacent about our spiritual walk. Not to go, I'm saved by grace alone, through faith alone. You know, this is not something that I can do. So I'm not going to boast about it. and I'm not going to do anything about it. That's not biblical. It sounds scriptural because it's using scripture. But if, it's, if, if your faith in Jesus' work in your life is causing you to do nothing in your faith, you, do not, you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the faith in him actually motivates and animates us. So we're going to talk about the time when we should be doing our best to enter into the rest that God's given us, the ability. How do we do that? How, do we, how are we supposed to do this in the first place? And what do we do when we fail at that? So first off, the time. When am I supposed to be doing my best for God? When am I supposed to be like doing my best to center my life around my convictions about who Jesus is and the life that he's called me into? Not getting complacent in my disobedience with him. What, when am I supposed to be taking that seriously? The author of Hebrews hits this over and over and over again. It's today. And, and the cool thing about it is that he mentions that I, I didn't even realize this the first time I studied this, this passage, probably because I studied chapter three and then I studied chapter four separately. But if you realize that this whole thing is about this wilderness experience, he keeps coming back to today, 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 today. Do you know why he keeps coming back to today? Because as human beings, we hate that word. You know what word we, word we love? You, you know. <laughs> when are you going to start that diet? <laughs> when are you going to start working out? When are you going to call and apologize to your mom? You know. <laughs> ben Franklin once said, why put off till tomorrow what you can do the day after tomorrow? So, I mean, it's, it's the truth is, is that, that we, we, have a, we have a passion for procrastination. The most toxic, one of the most toxic words in the human language is, in the English language, is tomorrow. Because that's gonna, it's going to keep you right where, and we can justify it. I'm going to start this new important thing in my life, but I'm too tired right now, so I'm going to do it tomorrow. I'm going to make this step that I know that I should take, but, I, but you know what? It's too complicated right now. I'm going to do this tomorrow. If you keep living tomorrow, you will never, you will never grow. And actually, one of the, the key strategies, I believe, of Satan is to convince you, no, you should listen to God. You should do everything God wants you to do. Just do it tomorrow. Instead of doing what the, what the passage conveys in Psalm 95, if you hear God's voice, do not harden your hearts, but listen. Listen to his leading and, and obey. Be obedient. And you start that today. Just two of those passages, verse 13 says this, see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily as long as it's called what? I love that. 
It's like, okay, if it's tomorrow, don't worry about it. You don't have to do it then. Just do it on, on any day called today. Okay? The only time you really need to worry about, like, this, this areas of sin in your life, the things that you know, like, I know God's not cool with this, but I kind of want it anyway. The only days that you really should worry about that and pay attention to that are the days of today. And the only days that you should really encourage each other in that to avoid those areas are days that you can describe by today. So that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Two verses later, as, just, as, as, as has just been said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. So just think about, today. Just, just think about this today. For tomorrow you can forget about this. But today... What are areas of your life today, if you have, were to evaluate, if you're doing an inventory of your own hearts and your own lives, you, you, no one knows you but, but you, not really. What areas of your life would you say aren't you doing your best for God's glory in obedience to God? What are, area, what are thoughts and actions maybe no one even knows about, but you would honestly say, this is not my best this isn't even like passing as close. Let's not let, not let anyone else judge you, including me. Just let Scripture do that. What areas do you know that the Word of God communicates are different and off the grid? You know when you should take care of that? You know when you should surrender that to Jesus? Do you know when? Okay, just today. And then tomorrow. When it becomes today, do it then. And keep doing it each day. When, the time that we should be doing our best to enter into the rest that comes from obedience in God is today. But not only th- that, but also our ability. How in the world am I supposed to do this? Because again, my perspective on the gospel is this is free gift. This is God's work in my life. I didn't, I'm not like obedient enough that God says, you know what, Errol, because you've done such a good job at doing your best, I am going to apply the sacrificial blood of Christ on the cross in your stead. Good job. You merited it. Awesome. You're going to go to heaven. No, the Bible does not say that. The Bible talks about the fact that this is not something that I did. And and so the idea of like doing my best that almost feels like something that I could be boasting about or that, that I could be like, like carrying as a trophy, like I did it, look what I did. I, I'm a good follower of Jesus, I'm obedient, I'm not, I'm not as messed up as my friends or you are or whatever. And we could carry that around like a trophy, like we did it, but it's not that at all. Doing your best is, it, it, and, and the ability to do our best for, to let God transform our life is, is a lot more like this. Um, any of you guys Blackhawks fans? Okay, wow, 14 of us, that's great. Red Wings fan? Okay, okay. now, <laughs> all right, so Blackhawks fans, um, I love, this, this is a big deal, okay? And this was a big deal in 2010, this was a big deal in 2013, and this was a big deal in 2015. I really loved these years, and I really loved being around you in these years because you were actually happy. And when, and like, you, it changed. These things changed your demeanor. Like, it changed your demeanor. You'd roll down your windows. You're driving down the street. I'd wave at you. And I'm just hearing, nah, 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 nah. nah. You know, you're just like, you're freaking out. You're super ecstatic. And the thing is, is that what is that that, that the, the Blackhawks won? What is the thing he's hoisting over his head? The Stanley Cup. And, and do they just like, and basically they celebrate on the night of their final win and they just keep it in the arena? 
No, they actually take that puppy on tour. They've got parades in downtown Chicago and people come out to celebrate the team and celebrate the cup. People go bananas. I mean, it's like it is Christmas and Easter and Halloween all rolled into one. It's like everything is, is just phenomenal. And, and people are, they love the fact that they're carrying it up. But the thing is, is that it doesn't even stop there because the Stanley Cup then goes on tour around the country and people, Blackhawks fans, get a chance to go and they get to see it and take pictures with it. And and that's a big honor because this is like the Stanley Cup. But they get kind of salty when stuff like this happens. That's Justin Bieber. <laughs> Justin Bieber is wearing LA Kings gear. And he's posing by the Stanley Cup after a Blackhawks win. And he's standing on the emblem and everything else. And that, that, they hated that. But they, a lot of people, the internet freaked out because this non-Blackhawks fan is touching the Stanley Cup. Maybe a Blackhawks fan in a photo op is cool to do that, but certainly not someone who's like a, a fan of another team because the only people that really should be hoisting this up and touching it to that degree is one of the champions. It's them. It's there. Because again, this is something that people freak out about. And all of a sudden, they, they gather around. And the fact that the Blackhawks win changes Everything. It changes their psychology. It changes their demeanor. It changes how they dress. They call up their bosses and they lie to them and tell them that they're sick so they could be there. And they, and they watch this and they celebrate. And thousands of people, thousands upon thousands and thousands of people who can't even be there are watching their phones and watching their televisions for this moment. They got to see it live because this is an event. But there's not one single person in the crowd that looks at that and says, look at that trophy. I did that. Like, John over there, in like the third tier back there, John's not like, woohoo! I should just go up on stage. No! Like, shut up, John. They did that. Because everyone there, the thing that they're celebrating is not a trophy they earned. They're celebrating this. You did it. You did it. You did it. And because we are affiliated with you, because we are connected to you, what you, I didn't do anything. I didn't do jack squat in this. I didn't spend one second on the ice to win that trophy. I didn't get one puck and one goal to earn that trophy. But because I'm affiliated with you, I'm identified with you, what you won has impacted me. And it's changed me. And I'm going to be a happier person around my house for at least a week. Now, here's the thing. When we're thinking about our relationship with God, what gives us the capacity to do our best to actually allow our life to be recentered around the life that Jesus has authored. What gives us the ability to say no to sin is not authored in us. It's not a trophy we can claim. It's Him. It's God's work for us. We pick up on that in chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. Take a look. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken about another day. In other words, if, if getting into the promised land was like the end of the story, like, whoo we're in Israel. Now we could rest. This is all that God planned for us. Then David, would, the psalmist, wouldn't talk about the ability to enter into a rest still at this point. For us, the, the, coming into the rest isn't like going to Israel and like camping out there. It's actually a rest that defies borders and countries and, and oceans. It it's, it's defies context and, and, and circumstances of what you're going through. He says, he says that, and then he says this in verse 9. There remains then a Sabbath rest for God's... I'm sorry, there is a God's rest also rests from their works. Let me read that one more time. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Verse 10. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. 
So you have the author of Hebrews almost giving a paradoxical call. Do your best. Do your best. You know what you get to do? Enter your rest. You get to rest because of, not because of your work, because of his work. What Jesus Christ did on the cross rescued you. He saved you. And his, the fact that he's risen from the grave gives us the reality that he's still with us. He's still giving us the capacity to make that choice on a daily basis. Are we choosing to make every effort to follow his lead? Or are we just banking on the fact that when we were seven, we prayed a prayer? Are we, are we making a decision that right now, right here now, in my everyday life decisions as a 17-year-old or as a 70-year-old, that, that these decisions are, is, is this a decision that I am doing my best to enter into what Jesus has authored for me? Or is this just me still holding the wheel? And I've got a little like, you know, bobblehead Jesus on my dashboard saying I still believe in him, but I'm the one who's driving this car. The truth is, is that, that what Jesus' work for us not only saves us, but gives us the capacity to follow his lead. And that's good news. Because if you feel like a failure, you feel like you can't do it, you can recall the fact that not only did he save you, the Holy Spirit is, is the one who is empowering you to follow his lead and make that daily choice, as long as it's today, to obey him. It's your choice. He gives you the capacity to make it. Where does your ability come from? God's work in you. But third, what happens when you fail? And every single one of us in this room have failed and will fail. Because you might be saying, okay, I've identified the fact that there's things in my life that are not my best for God. I, I feel convicted by that. Like, I, I, I kind of know what I, I need to, to surrender to Jesus. And so I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that today. I'm not putting it off to tomorrow. And you do. And then all of a sudden, Tuesday happens, and Wednesday, and Thursday, and all of a sudden, there's enough time that all of a sudden you find yourself slipping back and you start to go, man, is it even like, seriously, what's the point? If I can't be perfect at this, what's the point? And, that, and the truth is, is that what God has called us to do, he knows us. He knows that we're prone to go off the rails. He knows that we're prone to wander. And we know that he knows this because of what we see in verse 12 in chapter four. Look, listen to this again. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even in dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes. Okay, that's terrifying. Because I can have awesome actions in front of you. I can have even decent actions in front of others and still have super messed up thoughts, right? And you don't know that. My family doesn't know that. My coworkers don't know that. But God does. He knows not only my actions, he knows my deepest, darkest thoughts. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. As terrifying as that sounds, it is the best news you're going to hear. Here's why. There are things that you would not tell the closest people in your world because of fear of judgment. Like if you actually said, some of you say everything you think, it gets you in a lot of trouble. Some of you though, even that's filtered. I mean, it doesn't sound filtered, but it is. There are things that you actually don't utter that you think in those darkest moments. And there's even things that you may have done or said or thought that you don't ever want to surface to someone because if you did, you would fear that they would reject you because you would reject you in the same circumstance. 
God already knows all of that. And as much as he knows everything, the reason that that's the best news in the world is not only does he know everything, and not only does he know more than anyone, he loves you more than anyone. He not only knows more about you than anyone, he loves you more than anyone. And he has the capacity and the willingness to forgive you more than any other one. Whatever you have done, whatever you are ashamed of, whatever you feel is the reason that you can't progress forward, or this is the deal breaker, or this is why I'm over, this is why I can only live a, a deep minus Christian life, you're wrong. You know why you're wrong? Because the word of God sees everything and he's still giving us the invitation to enter into his rest. What I just read to you about God knowing all of our thoughts comes in the context of verse 11. Once again, this is the verse we started out with. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by disobedience. The author of Hebrews is saying, God knows it all and he's still inviting you back. He loves you, he's bringing you back. So our response is simply this, to openly and honestly return to centering our life around his rest. Sometimes I, 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 I don't see someone for a long time at NBC and then I run into him at Jewel because that's where you run into everyone. And, and there's always that awkward, <laughs> you, you know what it's like, where it's like, like oh no, the pastor. <laughs> Put the beer away. We're buying LaCroix. Sure. Pastor, I know it's been like forever since we've been at church. But you don't understand. Life has been really crazy. And it has. I mean, like I know some people's lives and it is. It's bananas. Um, but you know what's weird? It's like whenever we start to center our life around and our life choices around something other than Christ and his call on our life. Not that there's other things that aren't important in life, like, like everything, is sports and kids and, and vacation, these are all important. But whenever we make some of those things the center of our life that everything else revolves around, church is just one of these other orbiting things, or, or your walk with God is one of these orbiting things. And, and the, the crazy thing is, is that what ends up happening is, in that situation, what starts as really good motivations just to take a step out or take a break or get occupied in other things, slowly becomes something where we start to get easier and easier to get more and more distant. And that doesn't just impact the way that you are at church. I mean, it starts to impact your heart with God. And what you, what was, what's very easy to believe is like, oh no, God and I, we're still good. We're still good. But that word spudazo, that word spudazo about doing your best, it's used 10 times in the New Testament and it's used for two different things. Your relationship with God and also the ongoing relationship you have with other Christians within the context of your church family. And so when we're taking steps out bit by bit, it's very easy for our heart to start to get hardened. And then we start seeing decisions that we're making start to become further and further from God. It's not just our, our physical presence being distant. It's actually our decisions. Uh, other people, um, part of the reason they're off the grid is because they've done something that they're ashamed of. And they feel like, I'm going to start getting back connected with God's family, but I got I to get through this season first. I got to get my life together first. The author of Hebrews says, no. Church is a collection of the broken people who are honest about their brokenness and their need for Jesus. That's what church is. We gather together recognizing that Jesus is the one that we have in common, not our perfection, because not this, the thing that we have in common is our imperfection. And so what I want to challenge you with is to see the fact that God has called us to a lot of things, but this is not it. 
A restless life is not it. He's called you to be the person that when you find yourself off the grid, where you're finding yourself failing, and you're finding yourself starting to take the first initial steps into that wilderness reality, openly and honestly repent to him who receives you back willingly every single time. And make that something that each day you get a chance to take steps in, as long as it's called today. And you will find yourself engaging a rest that is unparalleled. The times in my life where I have been the most, had the greatest quality of rest have been the moments where like when I was seven or eight years old and I was in the apartment building in La Crescenta, California and my mom led me to, led me to the Lord. My, my Sunday school teacher had told me about our need for salvation, but, but my mom led me to the Lord. And I remember feeling, even as a little kid, like, <sighs> do you remember that? And I remember when I was in junior high because I started to realize that church was kind of like kind of like a, a thing my parents were about, but it wasn't really my deal. But all of a sudden in junior high, I felt, I remember being at a camp and I was hearing God's word talking about what he was calling me into. And I recognized that the decisions that God was calling me into, God was calling me to take steps that I made a decision on that my parents had no idea about. And, for, and, and I remember in those moments going, <sighs> being blown away with this excitement that I've got the ability to make these decisions and follow God in my heart. I remember when I was a junior in high school, at the same camp, and I, and I sensed God was calling me to be a, a pastor, and I wanted to say no. And when I said yes, I remember, God, I remember just this feeling like, just blown away. This quality of peace that I can't describe. I just shared with you three examples among thousands that I've, just, I've chosen a restless decision apart from God. But I share those examples with you because if you're a Christian, you can relate to the fact that you remember what that's like too. And that's afforded to you today. And if you're not a believer, I want, you to, I want you to say, I need to put my trust in this Savior who has authored my rest, a, a relationship with God that I couldn't have on my own through Jesus Christ. Let's stand for prayer as we close. And I'm going to lead us in an opportunity. If you are not a believer, that is an opportunity for you to make that, to cross that line today based on his work for you. If you are a believer, it's your chance to recenter yourself on that reality. Let's pray. Lord God, your word is blatantly clear about the fact that we have a need for you. We have a distance from you, our, our creator. We feel we've, we've been born into a toxic pollution God that's all over us. And God, that, that sin baton is something that we've picked up and acted out in our own life. And we've seen the damage in our own life. We know it's away from you. Even if we're not a Christian, we know that it's away from you. We intuitively understand, God, that there's something that's distant between us and the way that life should be. If you're not a Christian right now as we're praying, simply respond to the Savior who loves you by asking him, to forgive your sins based on his work on the cross for you. Ask him to lead you starting today in a daily walk empowered by his Holy Spirit. Ask him to 
remind you when it gets difficult that he will never leave you or forsake you. And if you are already a follower of Jesus and you recognize that you are not centered on the conviction that Christ is supreme, that he is sovereign, that he is the leader of your life, you believe it, but most of life decisions have been off of that, off center. Convey that to him. Communicate your repentance to him. Ask him for forgiveness and ask him to reorient and recenter your life on the greatest reality that any of us could ever possess. Lord God, I pray that you do this and that you begin today, this Father's Day, as a day that will be a line in the sand for many of us in this room who are journeying after you, aiming to glorify you with our life, and that you indeed, God, will receive glory. Let us not be wanderers in the wilderness of our own decisions and our own rebellion, but live congruently with you and when we fail to return each and every time to your grace and your mercy, and we'll give you thanks for that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Amen. You are dismissed. Happy Father's Day. We'll see you next week.